0: Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I bet you're smart.
1: Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name
0: is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahey Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and how the tech are you? It's time for a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published on May 4th, 2015. So hey, Star Wars Day. Uh, It is titled The Story of Internet Explorer Part 1, which I guess means you can probably have a pretty good idea of what next week's classic episode is going to be. This episode featured special guest Nate Langson. Nate is awesome. Great tech journalist. Uh, I should have him on the show again. It's been too long since I last spoke with him. Hope you enjoy. Nate is joining me to talk about Internet Explorer. And the reason why we're talking about it is that it's a web browser has a very long history. And uh, that history now seems to have an end cap to it because Microsoft appears to be leaving Internet Explorer behind And embracing a new product that currently is codenamed Project Spartan, but will probably have some different name once it actually goes live. Mm. So we're going to cover the dramatic uh, history that's filled with uh, tons of, of interesting stories, as it turns out. And to really get started, we have to turn the clock back before there was ever any web browsers at all. Uh, at the birth of the first web browser, which we can trace back to Christmas Day, December 25th, 1990. Wow,
2: so, 1990. MXC, as the <laughs> Romans would have called it.
0: Right. Uh, I'm glad you took that. Whenever I start thinking about Roman numerals, I have to start dialing IXII, uh, ah. which only makes sense for the listeners here in America. Um, so... Tim Berners-Lee was working at, at CERN, same people who are responsible for the Large Hadron Collider, and had developed a, a program that would allow for the retrieval and display of information uh, in a way that would make sense, make it easy to navigate. This would become the first web browser, which is kind of funny because without the web browser, you really don't have a World Wide Web. You definitely had an Internet because the internet is a network of networks, and a lot of people, I realize, that maybe this isn't as bad as it used to be, but a lot of people often will say web and uh, mean internet or vice versa. They'll use the terms yes. interchangeably. Not I've, entirely I've,
2: correct. I've described it in the past, actually, to people who get this wrong as the web is the car on the highway that is the internet. Right. They are, they are the web sits on top of the net.
0: Right. And there are other vehicles on that same highway, right? Because Correct. e email does not have to be web based. Right. Uh FTP, you know, file transfer protocol, other protocols. Um in fact the way I originally really made use of the internet back in the day was through the Telnet chat client. I used that a lot when I was in college as a way of distracting myself and making friends with people who were more into the same things I was into. I went to for the first two years of my schooling a small community college in rural Georgia, and a lot of the people I was around didn't share the same interests I did. So Telnet was one of those things that allowed me to uh, go beyond that. But that was before I had ever heard of the World Wide Web and web browsers. Um, So... We have to remember that this time before there were browsers there there, there, was, there were not really any user-friendly ways of accessing information. You kind of had to really dive into the tech and understand commands in order to get anything out of it. Even if those commands were fairly simple, it was a high enough barrier of entry that there were only a few of us playing in that in that world at that time. Right. I mean, there were like people in colleges and research facilities and governments that had access to it for various official purposes. There were very few like fun applications outside of some wacky people saying, hey, this computer that's crunching numbers for your uh, your astronomy class, we can also make it play (laughs) tic-tac-toe. Yeah.
2: I mean, around about this time, there were also other similar sort of projects, I think, that were going on at CERN. Like people yeah. built sort of not competing necessarily, but there were other programs that were created to sort of browse in in a in a more visual way.
0: Right, and and it turns out that this was a brilliant idea. And it, another little uh, thing to to fall back on is just a quick explanation of what's going on with a web browser for those of you who who are you know uh, more casual fans of technology. This might be helpful for those of you who, you know, are are really deep in the field. This is going to sound incredibly simplistic, but we have to talk about what a client is and what a server is. So your client is essentially your machine, the device you're using to end up retrieving information from some other computer, a server which actually holds the information that you are interested in. So if you are using a web browser to visit a web page, there is somewhere in the world a computer that has all that information on it, and it gets the request from your browser, the client, and says, all right, well, here's what you asked for, and sends it across the internet. Your browser is in charge of displaying that information in some way that hopefully is useful and and informative. And that's the basic relationship that the web browser is built around. It's not the only client-server relationship, but it's a great example of one.
2: Mm. And, it's, so, and it's it's interesting because, as I'm sure we will be coming to later, the relationship between the idea of a client-server model really has not changed. And in fact, when you get into the likes of the Chrome OS, mm-hmm. the browser is just a dumb client. It's a client-terminal yeah. model for the entire OS, and essentially. But we're we're moving forward 25 years. Before we get to that point.
0: <laughs> the nice thing is that this model works so well that it ended up being the foundation for a lot of different applications, including the Chrome operating system. And uh and of course we're seeing more and more services and applications migrating to the internet side of things, where we see this this uh I mean it's kind of a seesaw act, right? On one side we see Hardware manufacturers that are still saying, no, 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 you really want the strongest, fastest machine possible. And meanwhile, all the service providers are saying, we're handling all the heavy lifting. You just need a device that can connect to us. Uh, that way we get to control all the stuff. Uh, so it's it's but it's because of this relationship that that kind of infrastructure is even possible. Mm. Um, I mean, that, I mean, that's the
2: interesting thing also, just as a slight related tangent i suppose about moore's law which is celebrating an anniversary um at at the moment is that it's always been assumed that we need the most and biggest and fastest power in our computers because we want to do more and more things locally um which in a way if that was always going to be true you would need less and less on the on the server side um Mm -hmm. outside of the the realms of um the web but of course now it's becoming much more about efficiency and and low cost and and um thinness in our, in our devices and so we don't need that sort of huge lifting power within the machines we're currently using ourselves which makes a browser the perfect interface for a modern machine because it just needs to be the go-between the conduit between the very powerful server mm-hmm. and the very small powerful uh, less powerful desktop machine or, or laptop or tablet or notebook or what have you and it right. means Moore's law has may actually become irrelevant Before it actually becomes wrong, you know, we may not need that power, that sort of doubling of power every 18 months, because we have actually no need for that power anymore.
0: And in fact, Moore's Law originally was all about the financial side of, you know, the fact that there were these financial drivers that were incentives to create these increasingly more powerful and smaller components on a square inch of silicon. Now mm-hmm. we're getting to a point where if if we don't need that then there's less incentive. So there may be a point of pride among some, you know, engineers and computer scientists who want to keep pushing that envelope and try and make it um you know, try and beat their record in a way. But if the the demand isn't there then like you said, Moore's law could become obsolete before we hit that fundamental limit from the laws of physics that yes and if us a motor car had
2: gone through the same exponential growth that moore's law predicted or for um, silicon um, you would be able to do a hundred miles on one tenth of a milliliter of fuel and that would cost you 25 cents right in a car that costs 25 cents
0: right and uh in order to get back to the world that where this is this is being you know this is a relevant thing, uh, going back to the early '90s. This is these are the days where uh, early '90s I was in high school, about to go into college, um, and early to mid '90s that's my high school college years. Uh, in the those early '90s, you started seeing lots of different programmers build their own web browsers. Uh, a lot of them were within CERN. Some of them were in colleges and universities, and Uh, we started to see more people get access to it because it was very clear that this was going to be a useful tool to navigate information. We move on to February, 1993, and that's when, uh, Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina of the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, aka the NCSA, our mutual friend Tom Merritt, I believe, went to the University of Illinois, uh, NCSA, uh, they decided to introduce a browser themselves that was the Mosaic browser. It was uh, on Unix. Uh, it was also for uh, the the X Windows platform. Um, and uh, their their colleague, Alex Todek, created a version that could run on Macintosh computers. So this was a browser that could run on cross platforms, although uh, the appearance of web information varied depending upon what platform you were using. So it wasn't a um, a smooth experience across all platforms. It wasn't something that was, it wasn't like you were going to get the exact same experience on one machine as on another, but you could get to the information. Uh, and it had a lot of features that said, apart from the earlier web browsers, like things that we take for granted now, like bookmarks, you know, that would, being able to to mark a specific web page as something of interest so that you can easily navigate to it in the future was really important. Also, things like icons and pictures as opposed to just text, which made it more attractive to look at. Um, And it was free to use. And it's important to mention this beforehand because it turns out a lot of the the stuff they worked on would later find its way into other future web browsers. Uh, By 1994, Marc Andreessen would partner with Jeb Clark, who was the founder of Silicon Graphics. They created Mosaic Communications it was later renamed to Netscape Communications, and they started to develop a web browser for the consumer market. So that's going to sound really familiar to anyone who was, uh, you know, using computers around the time of the first browser wars. Netscape should definitely ring a bell. Uh, and this I, is
2: around the time that, that Windows 95 is basically about to go gold and and go on sale. So we're still on, in Windows 3.1 era at the moment, I think. Yep,
0: yep. And, uh, and I mean, uh, the Netscape Navigator, I think, was the very I might have used Mosaic when I was in college, come to think of it. But I'm pretty sure I quickly transitioned to Netscape Navigator. And that became my browser of choice uh, in those days. Uh You know, I didn't ask you, Nate, what browser hmm. do you typically use when you are? I use are
2: Safari with... for almost oh, everything.
0: So you are a, you are clearly a Mac owner.
2: I am a Mac owner. I I love Safari because I, I use almost no add-ons at all because I just want speed and fast and I need it to sync everything. And uh, Safari's always worked really well for me.
0: That makes sense. Uh, I I detest Safari with a passion that burns brighter than a thousand exploding suns, <laughs> but it's mostly because I don't use a Mac. Uh, if I did use a Mac, then like if you're in the Apple infrastructure, it's amazing. <laughs> if you're all in, it's phenomenal. Uh, if you're only kind of sort of in, it gets really irritating really quickly. Uh, but then I'm all in on the Google infrastructure. So I use Chrome.
2: Uh, ah, Yes, that's the difference, you see, because the browser is the thing you use the most, I would imagine. And so if your phone is the thing that you carry and use the most in the day, then it stands to reason that you're going to want to use a browser that works best on a phone.
0: Right. And, and <laughs> that's kind of peeking ahead to some of the issues with Internet Explorer, Uh so so 1994, we get uh, the NCSA licensing the commercial rights to Mosaic to a company that was called at the time uh, Spyglass. The company no longer exists, so that should tell you how things turn out in the future. Uh, Spyglass ended up licensing that same technology to other companies, including Microsoft. So the Mosaic code ends up making its way to Microsoft, um, and that was really important to Microsoft because, as Nate was saying... They were preparing Windows 95 for launch and they really wanted to have a component in there that would be a web browser and they had decided that it made more sense to license that technology from someone else rather than trying to de- to develop it in house so that's what led them to Spyglass and licensing the Mosaic code We'll be back with more of this classic episode of tech stuff after this quick break Working remotely Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
2: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
1: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a there. available wherever you will get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and for details
0: when you think about the future what kind of technology do you envision Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. October 1994, Netscape would release a beta version of their project, which was codenamed Mozilla. That'll become important later too. It was designated 0.96b. I I decided early on that when I we start looking at the actual builds of Internet Explorer, we're going to look at whole numbers only, because otherwise. The path leads to madness. You mean you're
2: uh, not going to consider Chrome version twenty six point nine point six four three two point three six four? No, I mean, that I, was a seminal release.
0: I mean, it was beautiful, really. I mean, it, the the fact that it it improves so much upon the predecessor that came out earlier that same day is phenomenal. But no, I'm going to skip it. <laughs> um, yeah. So we move on to to August twenty third, nineteen ninety five. That is the day Microsoft released. The Windows 95 operating system. Uh, man, I still remember the commercials for Windows 95. They had, uh, they had this little band, uh, the Rolling Stones that had a song called Start Me Up that was played during the Windows 95 commercials because that was also the introduction of the start button on Windows, uh, the little button that wouldn't quit or people wouldn't let the little button quit. And they introduced a web browser which they named internet explorer uh made a lot of sense it was it was in fact a way to navigate through the internet uh specifically the World Wide web but
2: this is this is a point i just interject here because this is the thing that i've always hated about internet explorer is that it's a web browser right why is it not called web explorer
0: (laughs) i think uh i think they were afraid they might have a, a you know like some sort of confusion with spiders or something. I don't yeah. know, Nate. It's it confuses me too. Uh, but yeah, Internet Explorer 1.0 came out with Windows 95. They had an agreement with Spyglass, which was incredibly clever. Some might call it sneaky and underhanded. Uh, their agreement with Spyglass. So Spyglass makes the the code, the technology that Internet Explorer runs on. Internet Explorer, the, the, the agreement with Spyglass was that Microsoft would pay a quarterly fee to Spyglass. All right, that's cool. And they also agreed to share royalties for Internet Explorer. But Microsoft also decided to bundle Internet Explorer with Windows 95, so Internet Explorer itself wasn't on sale. And so if you're not selling it, you can't make royalties, which means they didn't have to share any money from the Windows 95 sales to Spyglass, which I thought was sneaky. Yeah, pretty sneaky. Um, that would end up biting them a little bit later. But at any rate, at the time, they were just like, hey, we really scored on this. Now, when they started, only six Microsoft employees, according to every source I saw, only six people in Microsoft were actually working on Internet Explorer, which is kind of hard to believe today. Um, and the, uh, at the time... The web was not what you and I are used to. It had about 20 basic tags in HTML that allowed you to s- construct pages and change the style, things like tables and, and the font size, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's really, really basic. And if you ever look at screenshots of old browsers and old web pages, I mean, it mostly looks like the blandest Wikipedia page you have ever seen with no pictures or anything like that. A lot of the early ones don't have any pictures on them um, because if you did put a picture on it, then you were shooting yourself in the foot. Most of us did not have any fast connection to any kind of network. So accessing a website with pictures meant that you would start, you know, you'd navigate to the page, walk away from your computer for 10 minutes and then come back to see if the pictures had all loaded.
2: I remember it well. I particularly <laughs> remember it when I was trying to view pictures on the uh, now defunct page Cat Scan, where people would <laughs> use flatbed scanners to scan the undersides of their cats. Right. And uh, yeah, you, I could actually walk away and be very British and make a cup of tea while waiting for the photo of the cat to arrive right. on my computer.
0: <laughs> I, I guess this is the point where I, I I mentioned that Nate has two particular great passions in life, which include metal and cats.
2: <laughs> yes, and the other ones, but they are the ones I am known for. It seems
0: those are the, those are the two. I whenever I I I hear anything from you on social media, there's a there's a probably a forty percent chance it's going to fall into one of those two categories. Yeah. Uh, so there's so. still quite a, a few other things, but they don't they don't they don't hit as high a, a slice on the pie chart.
2: Yes, that's very true. Very true.
0: <laughs> so, one of the things about the limitations of HTML that were that was a particular thorn in the sides of early web browsers and web users was that the limitations meant people had to find creative ways around those limitations to create rich user experiences i don't did they ever use that term in the uk the rich user experience or rich um, internet experience
2: yes i mean we we probably heard it quite a bit i don't remember it particularly but i imagine it was there amongst all the other ones like zip drives and
0: right all right uh yeah the the rich user experience that was something where the idea was that you wanted to create a a an experience for the user that went beyond just simple text lines and pictures so one of the earliest ones would be midis that would loop and there'd be no way to stop them (laughs) uh oh i do remember those yes i
2: do remember those yes midis my goodness midis yes
0: yeah, so just the days of MySpace, where you would go to someone's MySpace page. I mean, this this that goes beyond what we're talking about here. But even then, oh, the not not I'm not sad to see those days go. However, what it meant was that people had to create software that would be a plug-in, an enhancement to a web browser, to allow uh, users to access certain types of content, largely streaming content, whether it was audio or video. So if you had a web browser in those days. You had to often enhance it with these plugins, which made the browsers clunkier, slower. They cu- they required more memory, In those days also memory was not as um, plentiful as it is today. Computer memory, so your whole computer would start to run more slowly if you tried to access anything that had any kind of you know video or Flash animation. Flash is another example. Some plugins that you had to have in order to get more out of the web pages. Uh, we would not see advances to HTML for a while that would address this. I mean, the whole point of HTML5 is to take away the need for all these different plugins that often can become security vulnerabilities. Um, the idea being that this way we can support the, those those different uh, functions natively within HTML and not have to have a Swiss Army Knife-style web browser where you've added all these extra features. Um, anyway... The the first version of Internet Explorer was about as bare bones as you can get, and um, the second one came out November twenty second, nineteen ninety five. So, if you remember, I said the first one came out August twenty third, nineteen ninety five. IE two comes out November twenty second, nineteen ninety five. That that's an incredibly narrow window for an mm. entire version upgrade. You know, it's uh, fast does not really go into it uh this one was for windows 95 and windows nt 3.5 and windows nt 4.0 so that means within three months you get a full version upgrade uh but that was actually kind of typical in the early days because the browsers were being were, were getting more and more advanced very quickly everyone was really interested in this this was the days when the media was starting to take notice of the World Wide web and it was going beyond just uh the, the governments and colleges and research facilities. So with that focus, you wanted to really get your browser to to be, uh, you know, a destination people wanted to go to, that people needed this technology.
2: There was another feature that they thought people needed in Internet Explorer 2, I remember. What's that? Yum, yum, yum. Mmm, delicious cookies.
0: Oh, uh, you know what? Those are important. Um, they, they have been misused. And that is unfortunate. Uh, they can cause huge problems. Uh, they are definitely one of those things you've got to worry about if you are concerned about internet privacy. However, that being said, it's also nice to be able to navigate to a website. You're in the middle of doing something. You have to shut down and leave. When you navigate to that same website on that same machine, you can pick up right where you left off. That's thanks to cookies. So cookies are just really short, short bits of data, really just short number, <laughs> short range of bits. If you want to mm-hmm. get down to it and they act as kind of a, a identifier and a placeholder so that when you start a session with a web page, the website, the web server can keep track of who you are and what you are doing. So that if you do leave for some reason and come back, you can pick up where you left off. So in retail, For example, if I put something in my shopping cart, but I haven't completed the transaction and I leave the website, the next time I go back to that website, I might still have that item in the shopping cart uh, because the cookies tell the server, hey, it's that same dude who just can't commit to purchasing this squeaky toy for his dog, which would be a great example for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So cookies definitely had their place, but obviously have been... They've got a lot of there's a lot of bad rap about cookies, too, because of things like the the idea of tracking um, uh, web browsing activity and, and sharing things that you might have thought were private otherwise. But they come from a good place.
2: <laughs> they do. And they are useful. Let's be honest. They are very useful. Yeah. The web would not be what the web is now in a bad way, I think. Yeah. Were it not for cookies? Because- well, yeah, I mean. They just allowed the Internet to be more personal.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you know, the idea that that your experience on the Web is at least in some part defined by and tuned to you so that you have the experience you want, or at least if you're working at it, you can have the experience you want. I wish that it were effortless so that just through the use of the Web, it becomes the way you want. For some people. It becomes the way it is rather than the way they want it to be because Mm. they don't know the tricks to, you know, kind of tune it as much as they they would like. But without cookies, it would not be possible at all. You would just have the same experience every single time you logged into any Web page. It would be as if you were there day zero, Uh, like that's the first time you had ever visited it. And you would have to go through whatever it is, you know, like whether it's logging into a service or adding things into a list, whatever that might be. You would have to do that every single time if it weren't for things like cookies. Yeah. Um, the next version of internet Explorer, number three, if you're keeping count, wouldn't come along until August 13, 1996. So they went almost a full year unthinkable <laughs> without coming out with a new version. Uh, this was the first one to really start to get some traction in the web browser wars because, uh, the other browsers had first of all, you got to keep in mind it was still a pretty small piece of the overall population pie. There weren't that many people online on the web in nineteen ninety six um, there were there were lots, but if you compared to the number of people who weren't it was a tiny number. Uh, that being said, there were things like like um, Netscape and Mosaic and other browsers that were already they already had a good share of the market. So IE was just starting to pick up. By the end of ninety seven, it accounted for about a third of the browser market, just under around thirty percent. And that gets us into the browser wars, which are like Star Wars, but more boring. Um but in my notes I wrote many bothans died to bring us this information.
2: Oh so, I, I'm so out of uh my depth to even understand why that is funny.
0: Oh I'm really? Sure it is. Okay, well, you're so, to the guy
2: who hasn't even seen all the Star Wars films.
0: Uh, it, it, it hurts me to hear that. But I know. then again, my former, my, my original co-host, Chris Pallette, I don't think even to this day has seen the movie Jaws. So he's, oh. he, he, he killed a, a, a small piece of me that day when he revealed that information. But uh, that, of course, is a quote. We've got more to say in this classic episode of Tech Stuff after these quick messages. Go to att.com incarwifi in-car today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion
0: Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
1: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. When you think about
0: the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Internet Explorer 3 was also the first browser that did not use the Spyglass source code. There were elements of Spyglass technology in there, so that it was still listed in the About page on Internet Internet Explorer. They kind of had a, you know, a, a license, little bit about how some of the technology was licensed from them. But they had moved away from SpyGlass to start working on a different source code to underlie Internet Explorer. And it was the first one to introduce Internet Mail to Internet Explorer and News 1.0 and the Windows address book. Neither of those things would matter for very long, but they were included in Internet Explorer 3. Uh, and they added in the support for lots of the plugins that Netscape could use. And that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. It, it increased the ability for Internet Explorer to access certain features that otherwise would just be unplayable. You get a little red X saying, this doesn't work here. Um,
2: I remember it well.
0: Yeah. Uh, this also, by the way, one of the reasons why I love the development of HTML5 and the conversion to HTML5 is that I also remember the days of those plugins leading to lots of opportunities for hackers to create fake uh, alert messages saying, hey, I know you want to see this, but you can't unless you first download the plugin or up update your plugin so that you can watch it. But in fact, instead of it actually being a plug-in, it was a virus that you were agreeing to download and install to your machine. So you get one of those messages saying, oh, you want to watch this, but you need to update to the latest version of real player, for example. Uh, and it wasn't actually a real player update or, or install file. It was an install file for some malware. That, ran, that, that was rampant at a certain point in the history of the internet. So the... The slow migration away from the plugin days is something that I've been waiting for for a long time because <laughs> uh, I get tired of answering those questions. Um, IE3 also added support for cascading style sheets. Now, this, again, very technical part of it, but it's uh, basically an easy way to define the style, the appearance of a web page. Uh, one of the things that was a big challenge in the early days of web browsers was making sure that the web page was going to show up the way the web designer intended it. Um, Nate, did you ever have to build a website without the use of a WYSIWYG editor or something where you had to do it in like a text editor?
2: Um, I taught myself to do it. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do that in text, and my um, my girlfriend Kate actually still does. Wow. And, uh, she, she, she can type responsive web stuff out in by hand. It's quite That's, impressive.
0: That is impressive. The, the first web pages I ever built, which I am not going to share, so don't even bother looking for them, cause they are awful. If they do still exist somewhere out there, I am embarrassed by their presence. Uh, but at any rate, I also did that the old school way where you had a text editor, you typed in all the, the markup language and the actual content of the web page, then you would have to save it, then open up a browser, navigate to the uh, the proper address of that page, which probably wasn't even published online yet, it was just native on your computer, look to see if it was actually showing up properly in the web browser you were using. And then if anything wasn't, you had to quit out, go back into your text editor, change things there and do it all over again. The bad thing in the early days is that even if you got it to work properly on whichever web browser you were using, there was no guarantee that someone else's web browser, a different web browser was going to show it in that same way. So you might take you know hours to painstakingly create and craft a web page. And if anyone was using a different web browser, they might get a totally different experience anyway. So that yeah, was you one kids of the-
2: don't know how easy you've got it with your <laughs> dynamic websites and your responsive designs. You know, back in those days, we were working out how to write out tables in right. te- in text editors, or there was this one piece of software that I remember getting for free at some point, and it used DHTML, and it was mm. actually it was WYSIWYG, but it was it was like drag and drop, and all the positions were sort of relative, so you could have objects anywhere, and it was brilliant. Right. Um, right.
0: Yeah, WYSIWYG, WYSIWYG, for those of you who don't remember, don't know what that acronym stands for, it's what you see is what you get. The idea being that you have a, an editor that lets you uh, edit within, like, you, you are actually seeing what the web page looks like as you're building it. So you don't have to do this swap between code and the appearance of the page. It's all there. Like, you might be able, most of them have an HTML editor component, so you can switch it to HTML. And just see the markup language and, and type in that way if you want to. But a lot of them have it where there are different templates that are built out. Their entire business is based on that. And some of them do it incredibly well. Uh, I use them, in fact, when I'm building web pages these days. Because while I remember doing HTML coding, uh, that was also when there were very few tags. So <laughs> I don't think I could do it today because I it, it would look like a website from 1995. If I were to build one today, uh, that way. And, and while that would be comedic, it would not be very useful. Um, Internet Explorer 3 was also when we got a very important development with IE. That is the logo of the lowercase E so that you get that icon of the lowercase E that represents Internet Explorer. Don't know what our world would be like if they had gone with something else.
2: A W for web, maybe. Just yeah, that throwing that out there again.
0: I, you know, it's madness, Nate. It's yes, it's, that that would have led to great strife in the world. Uh, and nine days after IE3 came out, security experts discovered a backdoor vulnerability that they called the Princeton Word Macro Virus loophole. So it had a very catchy name. Uh, backdoor vulnerabilities are seriously bad news, no matter what software you're talking about. That's the sort of vulnerability that gives an attacker access to your machine at whatever level you are logged in at. So if, uh, for example, you had your Windows machine, uh, you are logged in as an admin on that machine. Let's say that's the level of access you have. And if this is your personal computer, then yes, that's the access you have. This backdoor would give people that access, which is bad news. I mean, they could make your computer do whatever they wanted to at that point, install software that you didn't intend to have installed or direct your computer to attack other, other computers. uh, Mostly I would just,
2: I would just mostly open people's CD drawers, (laughs) um, print things out, leave messages on their screen, uh, you know, fire up the Simpsons DOS game, that kind of stuff.
0: I do know. I do know. I I have seen that happen. I remember seeing uh, someone who had, um, allowed that and their cd drawer the, the little the little uh, drive door would open and close over and over and they're like i don't know what's happening except so what's happened is you've downloaded something you shouldn't have that is handed over control to your computer so we're gonna start in safe mode and we'll begin from there and see if we can fix this
2: <laughs> yeah and uninstall bonsai buddy while we're at it yeah
0: yeah oh Man. Well, in fall of 1996, Internet Explorer would account for about a third of the browser market, like I was talking about. That's where they really started to get traction. And in 1997, the NCSA stops supporting the development of Mosaic. So the the web browser that really started all this off uh, in a real way had finally kind of run out of steam on the development side. But the the Browsers that still use that basic technology and had continued to develop it, they they kept going like Netscape Navigator continued on, Uh, although, of course, they had they had forked off of the Mosaic source code. So it was not the exact same stuff that was Mosaic. It had changed and evolved on its own. It's kind of like if you look at an evolutionary tree and you see where two different species have forked. Same sort of thing here, except we're talking about computer programs, obviously. And 97 was also when Spyglass threatened Microsoft with a contractual audit because of that quarterly fee royalty arrangement we talked about earlier. The fact that they were getting this quarterly fee, but not really any royalties, had kind of upset Spyglass because they said, well, when we agreed to this, the implication was that Internet Explorer, or whatever the web browser was going to be called at that time, was going to be a separate product. It was going to be something sold by Microsoft instead of bundled. With Windows um, and ended up prompting Microsoft to settle with Spyglass. I think the the sum I see most frequently is eight million dollars, which is not a small amount of money. But when you compare it to some of the huge deals going on seemingly casually in the world of tech and especially the world of the Internet, it's a pittance. Yeah, a tiny amount.
2: And for I Microsoft think- as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially for Microsoft. Yeah. Eight million dollars. It's probably what they have in between the cushions of their executive uh, lounge couch. You just sort through there and find a spare eight or nine million dollars, I'm sure. Um, which I think if you convert into English currency is approximately 15 pounds. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not good with that sort of thing, but I know it's somewhere. Hey, like the exchange rates all messed up at the moment. <laughs> all I know is that whenever I visit London, I'm always looking for uh deals because i realize like i don't know i honestly don't know how much money i'm spending right now (laughs) um internet explorer 4 comes out in 1997 that is uh marketed with the slogan the web the way you want it uh which i guess is true if you don't want it to be particularly good um it also handled rich text files and plain text email in their Internet Mail and News program, uh, which was now Outlook Express 4. It's called Outlook Express 4, but it really was the first Outlook Express. This is where we run into Microsoft's habit of numbering things in a way that probably makes sense to someone in Microsoft and no sense to anyone else. Like, yeah. I don't know why is Windows 10 Windows 10 when it could have been Windows 9, apart from the fact that calling it Windows 9 could have caused some confusion with people who are running legacy systems that still rely on Windows 95. I can't. Answer
2: in an era 10s. in an era Jonathan my friend where we have the iPhone 5S and the Galaxy S5, <laughs> I think we are in an era where we need to have Windows 10 and OS 10.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm I'm fine with that I guess. I uh honestly at this point we could just say all right letters and numbers make no difference in the world of the internet so just 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 go with it um so we don't have html email support and in, in outlook express 4 they it could just do rich text files and plain text emails so you didn't get any of the incredibly fun stuff like people sending you pictures in the middle of their emails uh and what if you're detecting some lackluster enthusiasm in my voice, it's because uh, those jokes only go so far with me. So <laughs> uh, please don't send me emails with lots of pictures in them. But first of all, my my outlook immediately blocks them unless I tell it to al- allow the photos. But you're just wasting bandwidth, really. Um, I'm not a huge fan of those, but but it obviously it makes it look better than it would if it were just a rich text file. Uh, and they integrated Real player as a streaming media player within Internet Explorer 4. Um, do you remember those days, Nate? Where
2: <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. I do the beautiful days of Real Player yeah. playing inside Internet Explorer. Ugh. Yes, those those wonderful days. I love those days. I'll tell you an interesting Real Player fact here. Okay, Real Player used to be brilliant.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, Real. What Real did. Was fantastic. It actually made video stream properly. Back in the day, while the player itself might have been a clunky mess, the compression they used was genuinely some of the most innovative online technology, in my opinion. Um, the problem is that everything else about it was awful Mm -hmm. and bundled as a plugin also made it a clunky experience. So Mm -hmm. it just, it just always felt like a poor piece of technology, but actually what it did was fantastic.
0: Yeah, there was a time where, I mean, I just remember so this this held true for way too long, where there were competing plugins. And in order to for you to be able to watch video online, it meant that you had to have three or four plugins on your browser, because one site would use one format, another site would use some would be flash based, some would be uh you know a real player base you would have all these different competing formats, and you didn't have a lot of options of like a a one player fits all kind of solution, so it ended up meaning that you had to add all these different plugins if you wanted to be able to experience all this different media across different sites. I don't miss those days at all i mean it, it, Microsoft really held on to it for a long time. Silverlight was one of those things that. When I would encounter it online and I would see something like, oh, you need to download Silverlight to see this. I thought, really? Do we re- are we really still there? Yeah. Um, Can we get beyond that and just have everyone say, OK, I, I wanted to be the person to or the entity to define what the standard was. But at some point, I have to admit my approach is not what has been considered standard. And I'm going to get on board with what everyone else is doing. Uh, it wasn't like that for a very long time. In fact, you could argue it's still not like that with certain types of, of media, but it just made it, it made it no fun, really. <laughs> like you would go to a site and say, oh, I have to add another plugin, which again, added that vulnerability. If you had to add in plugin after plugin, eventually you got, um, you know, you got conditioned to the point where you thought, oh, of course I'm going to need another plugin to see whatever this thing is. Never mind the fact that it's a plugin that I don't recognize and that I've never, you know, heard of before. I'll go ahead and install it and then you make your system vulnerable.
2: It's just uh, one of those things that was an, a necessity at the time. And I think really what what plugins did is they just fueled innovation. You know, yeah. like a lot of what is plugin, what was a plugin back in the day is now either baked into the browser or is baked into HTML itself. Mm mm-hmm. You know, when you think about HTML5 supporting new video formats, um, you know, like WebM that Google is behind, you know, mm. that's something that back in the day you would need, a, you know, a plug plugin for. Sure. Um, you don't need those anymore. And it was probably a necessary life cycle.
0: That's true. I mean, without it, then web pages would be very bland and limited and would not be nearly as... Important or uh, uh, influential as the web has become over the years. I mean, you know, this is also we're looking at now. We're looking at the late '90s when we're starting to get to a fever pitch of what the web could be. Uh, you know, which of course culminated in and then collapsed with the .dot com bubble bursting. Uh, that whole era, everyone was starting to see what the web could potentially be, but. If we relied simply upon what HTML could deliver back in those days, the web would have been a lot more, you know, utilitarian and less interesting. Mm. So I definitely agree that the plugins were a necessary part. It was also just as living through it. It just was also frustrating. Um, IE4 also supported dynamic HTML for the first time, which allowed for more interactive web pages. Again, that rich user experience we were talking about earlier. uh, That was an important element. And by bundling Internet Explorer with Windows, Microsoft ends up leveraging itself into a 60% market share of all web browsers. This was a huge story. It really turned things around, going from an underdog to the major player out of all browsers. So, not just, um, you know, Mozilla's or, or Netscape, rather, uh, Netscape's Navigator. Now, if you add in all the different competitors, they paled, but it was partly because the market share for PCs far outweighed other computer platforms, especially for businesses and casual users. Um, I mean, you obviously still had a lot of Unix machines running server software and in, in various, uh, uh, research and, and R and D areas, things like that. But if you're talking about the average person, they owned a PC, the Mac was not a competitor really at this time. Uh, and that meant that if you were going to buy a PC and you had a web browser just bundled in with it it made sense to go ahead and use it in fact for people who were not really savvy with the web that was their it was it was either AOL was the web here in the US or it was Internet Explorer yeah
2: and it, and it was here too the AOL some of my first web uh experiences were uh were AOL the the Walled Garden yep happy happy
0: times simple yeah. times yeah, isn't it great when you Safe have a, an entity that decides what is and isn't the web for you? That makes that makes life so much easier. Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of this Tech Stuff Classic episode right after we take this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I bet you're smart.
1: Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers.
0: And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner now. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what
0: kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. So May 18, 1998, this is where we get into where Microsoft runs into some trouble because of this policy of lumping Internet Explorer in with its operating system. Uh, the United States government brought a lawsuit against Microsoft Corporation. In fact, the Department of Justice was looking at an antitrust suit, saying that the company had practiced predatory strategies to push other companies out of the web browser market and the operating system market, as it turns out saying that uh, because they had packaged Internet Explorer with the operating system and because the operating system was really the only game in town for the most part for operating systems, it had the majority market share. If you were buying a PC, more often than not, it was going to have Windows preloaded on it. They were essentially saying you have stacked the deck against any competing company and you're pushing them out and that's not fair. It's, that's why we're bringing this antitrust suit against you. This was big news, and it wasn't the only place where Microsoft was having issues. It was also having problems in Europe. There were European antitrust suits brought against Microsoft. They were actually looking at more interesting things in a way. They were looking at how there were also allegations that uh, the operating system had been designed so that it worked really well with Internet Explorer and didn't work so well with any other browser. Almost as if Microsoft had taken pains to create an operating system that would, on purpose, decrease the use and utility of, of competing web browsers. And that was a huge red flag. Um, so you had these, these massive antitrust lawsuits going up against Microsoft uh, that wouldn't be resolved for years. I mean, we all know these lawsuits can last ages. Uh, and in fact... It wouldn't uh, pan out in the U.S. until 2001, and there would be this enormous settlement. And uh, originally, the, the ruling told uh, Microsoft, uh, the Department of Justice said, hey, you're going to have to split your company into two companies. You're going to have to have one that is building the operating system business and one that's building the software that exists on top of the operating system. But they're going to have to operate as two separate entities because if you package them all together, you have an unfair advantage over anyone who wants to build software for that operating system. Uh, ultimately, that did not happen. I mean, if you are aware, Microsoft is a single company. It hasn't been split, but that was originally what the ruling was. Um, and it was a huge, it was a huge news item in the day because anyone who wanted to use any other web browser was already mad at Microsoft for, appearing to make it more difficult to use those web browsers. So uh, I remember those days well, too, uh, because already at that point, I was not a huge. And like I said, I had been using Netscape Navigator as my early web browser for years and years, partly because uh, when I far- first started using the web, uh, I was a college student. So I got Netscape Navigator for free because it was a college application um, I didn't have to purchase it. In fact, I was I was pretty stingy about purchasing one for a long time. I was like, why should I pay for this thing that I've had for free for so long? Um, and I didn't like the way Internet Explorer rendered Web pages or the user interface or anything. So I was very upset at this time when I hmm. heard about about this. But um, I mean,
2: this would I Internet Explorer at this point was actually available on the Mac. Yes. This was one of the last ones actually that was available in the Mac. IE five, I think, was the very last one they made.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you I, could actually you could actually use Internet Explorer on the Macintosh at this time. Yeah. To be yeah. fair though, the Mac was not not what it is today in those days. No. This was uh this is the these are also the days where Steve Jobs had been forced out of Apple for a while and was just starting to come back to redefine what the Mac was. Yeah, so, this is
2: almost, almost exactly the time he came back and this was just before the iMac was released. Yeah. If not almost, depending on the, the particular part of the history we're, we're on almost month wise at the moment. This is, this is when that happened.
0: Yeah. So we've got this, this lawsuit going on. It hasn't, in 1998, it starts in 1999, IE was the, the, the dominant web browser, which was not helping Microsoft's case in that lawsuit. Uh, it was essentially being pointed at as C. If if people are complaining about how this browser matches up against other browsers, uh, how can you argue that the, the customer satisfaction or the desire for this particular web browser is what's driving the dominance in the market? It's clearly because it's tied so intricately with the operating system. That would be the kind of argument that the uh, Department of Justice would level against Microsoft.
2: Yeah, um, but it was. I mean, it, it, this was IE at this point was just so key to Microsoft. Yeah, you know, it had like a thousand people working on it at yeah. this point, just yeah. on the browser.
0: From from the six people of IE one to the one thousand and a hundred million dollars being being invested every quarter <laughs> into. Uh, or actually every year at this point, into uh, Internet Explorer. This is in the IE 5 days, because that came out in March 1999. Um, they had had a couple of preview versions come out in 98, but 99 was when they officially launched it. Uh, this was the one that would come with uh, Windows ninety eight second Edition, as well as Windows 2000.
2: And the um, dot com boom. I mean, this is yeah. a thousand people working on Internet Explorer, a hundred million dollars a year. This is, this is the, 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 these are the months just before the dot com bubble burst.
0: Right. And it's also, th- this is one where if you were a user, you probably wouldn't have noticed a huge difference in the interface between four and five, but a lot of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, right? The the back end of the browser had been upgraded, uh, which prompted uh, Paul Thorat to write that IE 5.0 is IE 4.0 done right. So in other words, the, the things that were innovative in Internet Explorer 4, but were still kind of clunky, were now much more smooth in the new version. So IE 5 was seen as a big step up. Um, and that was really important because we had this huge boom of innovation in the dot com world which as we all know was not sustainable uh long term anyway but it was it there was there was no greater moment of focus in the media upon the internet than at this time i would argue even today as as instrumental and important as the internet is and as we have all these different ways of accessing it including applications that can work with the web or separately from the web things like twitter and facebook i would say that in this time the late 90s going right into 2000 that was when we were at the peak (laughs) of focus on the internet specifically on the World Wide web um and uh uh, you know this is it's funny because if you look at the news reports from a couple of years before this that was when you had like the the stuff that was caught on camera but not originally broadcast where you had news anchors kind of talking about what is this web thing what is that what's that a symbol for what is email like it was from that com button yeah exactly it went from that to everyone now has to have a website if you're a business you had to have a website didn't matter if you had anything important to put on there but you had to have a website um you know that was that was the day and and IE5 was the perfect browser at the perfect time to really, you know, tap into that, which is is good because IE6 would be at almost 180 degree turn from that. So so before that, uh, just one little sad bit of news on March 26th, 2000, Spyglass was bought out by Open TV and Spyglass became no more. Now, that was, of course, the company that had licensed the Mosaic uh, technology from the NCSA and then further licensed it to Microsoft. It no longer existed as an entity of its own at that point. That was the story of Internet Explorer Part 1. We will continue the story next week in the next classic episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is H S W, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed.
2: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With Simelbo Grease